Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do we. We created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia, and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for almost a decade, and I've achieved a 99th percentile score on the GMAT and helped thousands of students get into the business school's of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since we all at TGS think our world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find. If this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying so that together we can make this process as easy and as painless as it can possibly be. Let's go. Today, I want to talk to you about how to structure your study time. This is something that I get asked about on calls quite a bit every single year. It's something that when I'm on forums responding to posts comes up quite a bit. And I think it's a very painful situation for a lot of people to be in because you might know what you're supposed to be studying and you might even have some good instruction on how to study it. But in terms of the proper sequencing of things and knowing that you're actually being efficient with your time, this is a place where a lot of people get off track, end up costing themselves months of wasted effort. And also a lot of anxiety, I think, because in the back of their minds, they sort of know, like, maybe I'm not doing this right, or they just question whether they're doing it right. So I want to answer all your questions about this today. If you have further questions after I'm through talking through this topic, then reach out to us on current social channels at the GMAT strategy or on Reddit, you slash the GMAT strategy. So if you've been listening the past couple of weeks, I've talked to you about what is on the new GMAT Focus Edition, which if you're listening to this after January 2024, is the only GMAT. It's just the GMAT now. And also last week, I talked to you about how to start in 2024. There's some major revisions to the test. We went through that long laundry list, and I'm not going to recap that here. However, in future episodes, I am going to talk a little bit deeper about the scoring system, how the algorithm has been updated, some of the new changes But I didn't want to make that first introduction to the exam super complicated. We're always looking for a balance of being thorough enough, but not being overwhelming. And that's where the sweet spot of learning is in my experience. For today, though, I want to talk about, well, how do I actually execute on this? So let's say you you know how to start, you understand the big picture, where do you go from here? The most important thing in creating efficiency is prioritization. If you only do new things in your prep, then you're just exposing yourself to a lot of material. But the risk there is that you're not actually building knowledge. This is a huge problem for a lot of people because it's a pretty natural assumption that if I just do a lot of GMAT problems, then I'm going to build my skills. So there's almost like this unstated or background assumption for a lot of us that if I did 100 GMAT problems today, I must be 100 like units better at the exam. But unfortunately, it's not that linear in 99.9% of cases. There might be that 0.1% of folks out there or maybe even 1%, probably not that many, honestly, who are gonna do great no matter what they do and they're just natural standardized test takers or they get a little bit of familiarity with the exam and they're just so intelligent or their memory and pattern recognition is so good that they instantly grasp what the exam is about and they get a great score and they're done. That definitely was not me. And if you're listening to this, statistically speaking, it's not you either. So let let me help. <laughs> the key on the exam is I don't get credit for what I've exposed myself to. I get credit for what I've learned. And I want to make a pretty clear distinction there because 
just doing a bunch of practice problems in general does not drive people's GMAT scores. Does that work on other tests? Yeah, for sure. Is the brute force approach valuable in other arenas or other skill building situations? Yes, for sure. There are plenty of coaches out there who are going to tell you just do a lot of reps and you'll get better and you'll you'll get great. This is not one of those situations. And if you know anything about my story, I did thousands of GMAT practice problems only to see my score go down. My hope is that many of you are not in that situation, but if you are, you're not alone. And I'm gonna start helping you figure out how to turn that around right now. If you are not in that situation yet and you are just beginning, then consider yourself fortunate, hopefully, that I'm giving you a leg up and that you're not just gonna burn three months of life that you're never gonna get back like I did and so many other people have uh, done out there. And if you've been burning through a lot of practice questions, I just want you to rethink that approach. I'm never going to argue with your results. If you're burning through a bunch of practice questions on your own and you're seeing the results you want to see, then great. Keep doing what you're doing. But that is not typical, even though it does seem logical. I want to attack this problem from two different levels. There's the overall level of how to structure your studies from start to finish. So what do I do first? What do I do second? What are the different phases of prep I go through? And then when am I going to be quote unquote ready to take the exam. That's the big picture of how to structure your studies. And then I want to dive into the smaller picture elements of what do you do on the day in, day out, hour by hour basis to make sure that your time is fully optimized. Let's start with the overall structure. I spoke about this a little bit in the past couple of weeks episode, but just to recap in case this is first time you're learning about this. The first step in general is take a baseline practice test so that you know where you're strong and where you're weak. That'll help you optimize your prep to a large degree because most big box providers out there are going to have a one-size-fits-all approach, and they're just going to have you go through the same curriculum irrespective of your strengths and weaknesses when you begin. Now, I'm not here to say if that's quote-unquote right or wrong. That's not my personal philosophy. If any of you are working with me, then you know my philosophy is, is much more targeted. But some programs out there are like that. And for some of you, that's what you want, and that's fine. For others of you, you want to move faster and you want to make sure you're spending your time only on the stuff that's absolutely necessary. And I'm going to help you a little bit with that in this episode. And then we're going to dive a lot deeper on that topic in, in future episodes. But that's the purpose of the baseline exam. And I've already explained that to a large degree in the past, so I'm not going to go long on that. Once you have that, you're going to use that information to pick the optimal provider for you, and you're going to start what I call the knowledge building phase. And that's just where you're relearning a lot of the core content of the exam, things like how to deal with exponent manipulation or algebra and how to solve equations or how to set up equations from word problems. And that's stuff that you either knew at some point in the past and you're going to shake the rust off of that through your program. Or it's stuff that maybe you never really learned properly. Maybe you didn't have the best math instruction as a young person. And so it's almost like learning it for the first time. And there's no right or wrong here. It's just about what's going to work for you and what you personally need to do to reach your goal. And I've seen the full spectrum of starting points, let me tell you. And I've seen success happen in, in any possible situation, situations where people totally doubted whether it was ever going to happen for them. And then other situations where people were supremely confident and it took much longer than they thought it was going to and everything in between. So no matter where you are right now, I want you to know it's pretty much normal. And we just need to figure out what we personally need to do, block out the noise of, of everybody else if it's not aligning with what they need to do and just take care of business. And it really is that simple when you have these frameworks I'm going to talk you through. 
Once you finish the knowledge building phase, and I'll talk more specifically about that in a moment, then you're going to move to what's called the application phase or mastery phase or what some people will call the practice test phase, where you're learning to take the knowledge that you build and apply it in a test-like situation. And hopefully the necessity of that is obvious. But I do want to say something that might seem obvious, but it's worth maybe just calling out or stating specifically because I think a lot of people don't maybe don't realize this super consciously, maybe only subconsciously, that when you're moving to that application phase, it's a whole new set of skills that you're building. It's not just, do you know how to get a mixture question right on a problem-solving question? That's more what you're working on in the knowledge-building phase. Now you have to think about, how do I get this mixture question right under time pressure? How do I manage my overall time in the section? How do I deal with the stress of the test? How do I deal with fatigue? How do I deal with the overwhelm of seeing... 20 questions in a row. There's a lot of different things that people deal with when it comes to performance under pressure. So I want to talk about that a little bit. That's what you're going to be working on in the application phase. Again, new skill set there, separate from just the skill set of getting questions right. Once you move through the application phase, which is a lot about re-optimizing your study plan based on a, a feedback me mechanism of practice tests, then you're going to be ready for test day, and then hopefully you take it and you're done. But just from the beginning here, it's good to plan to take the test at least two times. There's a, a relatively large margin of error in the scoring algorithm itself, 20-point margin of error last time it was reported from GMAC. That might change with the new exam, but because there's fewer questions, I wouldn't be surprised if the this margin of error increases, actually, or if they just keep it the same. And if you think about a 20-point margin of error, maybe that's not make or break for some schools, but it could be. And it could be make or break for certain merit-based scholarships, or it could just be make or break for your personal goal. And because it is pretty much just luck of the draw in terms of where you land in that 20-point margin of error on your overall score, it's good to try to control that element of luck as much as possible by planning to take the test twice, maybe three times. I would say two to three times is the average for most people. And then if you're super tight with your preparation and perhaps luck is on your side on test day, then you're done with it once. I think it's just a good mindset to have. So let's talk about how to operationalize all this information I'm going through. What are the steps you go through on a day-in, day-out basis? So irrespective of where you are in the knowledge building phase or the application phase, there is something that you're always going to do when you're studying for the GMAT, which is you're always going to start every single study session with some kind of review. I'm going to make my recommendations. Your provider, provider or professional advisor might have different recommendations. Here's what I recommend and why. The very first thing you should do when you sit down to study for any study session is tr try to recall and write down, physically write down, three major takeaways from your most recent study session. So what I like to do is when I sit down, I say, okay, what are the top three things I learned last time I studied? It might have been this morning, might have been yesterday, might have been two days ago. If I can't write down three, then I'm going to go back and look at the notes that I made during that session and work on it until I can get three, and I'm going to keep retesting myself on that stuff. Then I'll go back to the session before that. Can I write three? Then I go back to the session before that. Can I write three? And then wherever that three-item list is dropping off in terms of study session, I'm going to go back and review, and then I'll retest test myself the following day. Now, this is a constant challenge. This is something that might be very, very, very difficult. You will get better at it over time. But what you're doing here is you're forcing yourself to build knowledge, not just expose yourself to stuff and then forget it a few moments later or a few days later or a few weeks later. 
This is a situation where you might be knowledge building over the course of six months in some of your cases, maybe even longer. If, if you're starting from a really low point or you start with some, some bad strategy or you start with a provider that wasn't a fit for you personally, it's very difficult to make that decision perfectly. Just do your best, like I said in last week's episode. And do your best to stay positive and stay consistent, like I say all the time. This will really, really expedite that process of knowledge building, though. And this will help you with the big picture takeaways of like broad strokes of strategy, broad strokes of, of learning about different topics. And it'll just be that constant battle to keep yourself from forgetting what are the major things I've learned about the GMAT in my study so far. Now, if you want a more technical system, you're, you're welcome to make it. But when I'm talking to a general audience like I am here and you and I aren't working one-on-one -on -one or in a small group setting, I like to give advice that's like the can't fail advice. If you're not sure if this is a good fit for you, you can feel free to reach out to us and we'll do our best to help you over DM. And then obviously, if we're working together, we'll customize that for your specific situation. The next thing I recommend doing that's kind of like the can't miss, can't fail approach is you want to keep a list of problems to come back to. I've talked about this at length in the past. What I recommend here is resolve one to 10 of those at the beginning of every single study session. What I like to do is fix the percentage of time that I'm going to spend on review. So I usually recommend about 20 to 30% of every study session at the beginning is review, and then you leave 70 to 80% for new material. And then I like to just get through however many redo questions that are from my list as I can within that allotted time. And then sometimes they're really hard, so I only get through one. Sometimes they're easier, I get through three to five. But if you're more the like, give me a number of things to do type of person, then I would go just set a number like five or 10 and then stick to that every single time. Both ways work. The redo list is really simple. You just want to log any questions that were long, took you longer than, than, than you wanted them to take, or that were very difficult for you. You didn't have a strategy for them or you struggled with the strategy, or you just want to get more reps on that strategy to make it more natural. It's really simple. <laughs> That's how I recommend starting every study session. If you have questions about what I'm recommending there, let me know. And if you want a more robust system for structuring your studies, then uh, reach out to us and, and we can talk about uh, potentially working together. Um, but I don't want to be a broken record with that kind of stuff because I know we're not going to be a fit for a good, good number of you and that's fine. It's all good. Why do this kind of review? I think it's valuable to have some perspective on why these are good techniques rather than just blindly going with them. But if you're like, Isaac, I trust you, man. You seem like you know what you're talking about. I'm just going with it, then that's cool. But here's why this is so important. There's a phenomenon in learning science called the illusion of competence. And learning scientists have coined this term to talk about an effect that happens when we look at something we've studied before. So imagine like a study sheet, a classic study sheet that has all the rules of exponent manipulation, let's say, written out on it. And you look at that and you look at those rules and you think, yeah, I remember studying that. Yeah, I remember those exponent rules. I'm, I'm good on that. And the scary thing about that is we tend to overestimate our actual knowledge of those topics when we're looking at them on a study sheet like that by a factor of about three. So we're three times more confident than we should be. <laughs> In that situation, okay, that should be scary because if I'm looking at three exponent rules and I'm like, yeah, I got this, then in reality, I probably only am going to remember one of them on test day, which means I'm probably going to perform at about 30% of my capacity. So if you've seen score drops or you're struggling to move your score, that might be part of the problem. You maybe haven't had the right kind of review, even if you have been doing review on a regular basis. You might not be testing yourself enough 
and you might just be looking at stuff. And there is a big, big difference. So what we want to do is we want to integrate this concept of testing ourselves on a regular basis on material that we have seen in the past. This is a big reason that flashcards can be really, really helpful. I strongly recommend making your own. I'm not a fan of pre-made flashcards. It's this thing where if you're not putting in the effort to make it, you're just going to get a lower yield out of studying them. But that's not 100% true. And again, I'm never going to argue with your results. So if you're getting really good results with pre-made flashcards, then by all means, keep keep using them. But if you're starting fresh or you're not getting the results you want to see from pre-made flashcards, then make your own. It's well worth the, the investment of time and energy. There's something about making the actual flashcard that really facilitates the learning process in my experience. And there, there's a lot of theory behind that that I won't go into. But the main point that I want to make here is a flashcard is going to force you to test yourself on something. So instead of looking at a study sheet that just has a bunch of rules on it, on the front of the flashcard, I would write something like, what are the five most important exponent rules? Or, I'm, or I might go more specific, like, what do I need to remember when multiplying exponents with the same base? And you know personally what you need. And if you don't, try something. And if that doesn't work, make it more specific or less specific over time. Just iterate. A lot of this process is iteration, figuring out what works for you personally, what doesn't, and integrating the, the approach that works best for you. So the reason we want to test ourselves is when you're testing yourself on this knowledge, not doing the study sheet thing, but doing like the flashcard thing or the kind of question I recommended asking a moment ago of what are the top three takeaways from my last study sessions? is you're actually going to feel like you don't know it as well. So it's almost like this uh, opposite effect of what I was talking before. But when you are tested on it, you're eight times more likely to remember and get credit for that information than if you just do the look at it method of memorization or you just have no testing at all and no memorization at all, okay? So that's a pretty big gain. <laughs> that's a pretty big efficiency gain. And so I strongly recommend some type of testing yourself, whether that be flashcards or the questions I recommended before. Redo list problems, if you think about it, are kind of like a flashcard where the front of the flashcard is the problem itself. And then the back of the flashcard is like what strategy you want to associate with that or what takeaways you want to remember from that or just whether you're improving your timing over time. And that can be a really, really good confidence builder. So if you have questions about how to integrate that into your study session, just reach out to us. Otherwise, uh, hopefully I've made that extremely clear why that's valuable. Again, I just want to hammer this point. You're going to be doing that kind of testing at the beginning of every study session throughout the entirety of your preparation. No days off, no breaks from that. No, oh, I'll do it tomorrow and I'll just get in, get through some new stuff today. We all slip. It's difficult to be perfect 100% of the time. If you've gotten into a habit of not reviewing, and you want to immediately stop that habit as soon as possible because you're really going down a dangerous, risky path when you're not reviewing on a regular basis. I know it might be difficult. You might feel some emotional resistance to it. And I want to let you know that's totally normal. When I sit down to run these plays that I'm talking to you about right now, because I still use these in my um, other learnings that I'm working on, growing my skills in different arenas, I still feel emotional resistance to it. I don't want to do it. I get bored. I'm like, ah, let me just mix it up. This is so routine. It's so repetitive. And pushing through that emotional resistance is a really valuable skill. And I'm not going to get into the whole psychology of that right now, but a good analogy is physical exercise. And you're going to hear me talk about this a lot if you haven't already, which is 
we all know what it's like to do a workout that's too easy. And a lot of us have a lot of positive conditioning when it comes to physical exercise around like feeling a challenge while we're working out or feeling like we're pushing ourselves or going to the the point of exhaustion or failure and then pushing a little bit beyond that. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't have that same healthy relationship to pushing ourselves intellectually. There's a lot of negative programming I've realized in, in many cultures around any kind of intellectual struggle. And if you're feeling frustrated or you feel like you have to repeat things or if you're going slowly, then like you're bad or something's wrong with your, your study timeline when actually it might be the opposite. Usually it is the opposite where no, you're just pushing yourself. You're stressing the system. You're giving the system time to recover and then you're getting stronger. You're getting wiser. You're gaining and building knowledge. Just like you're gaining and building strength or endurance, when you're pushing yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone, when you're physically working out and then giving yourself time to rest and recover. You don't get stronger while you're working out. You stress the system while you're working out and then you get stronger during your rest time. So if you need to do a quick audit of your sleep, diet, and exercise right now, then go ahead and do so. You don't need like pro athlete level of sleep, diet, and exercise to get great GMAT results. It just needs to be reasonable. But if you know you could be stepping it up there, then I would just invite you to, to change one positive thing in each of those arenas or just one of those arenas per week and just keep leveling up and that'll really add up over time. So I've done my review. What comes next in my study session on a regular basis? This starts to depend which phase you're in. If you're in the knowledge building phase, it's very linear. You're just going to work through your study plan. If you're doing free stuff, you're going to hit YouTube or your PDFs or whatever free study plan you have. If you're doing books, you're going to work through the books and do your practice problems. If you're doing a course, you're going to do the assigned homework. If you've got a tutor or a one-on-one -on -one professional advisor, then you're going to execute on the game plan that they give you. This is going to be very familiar to relearning stuff like arithmetic, algebra, word problems, and then hopefully learning how does that show up on the GMAT? How is this actually tested on the exam? And if your provider isn't putting a lot of emphasis on that, then just get a copy of the official guide for GMAT review if you don't have one already. And make sure that as you go through each topic in your course that you're doing some practice problems from the official guide that are related to that topic so that it's not a huge shock to the system when you finish your content study, move to official guide or official practice test questions, and then realize like, oh my gosh, this is a lot more complicated and a little bit different, has a little different flavor. If you just integrate that a little bit over time, super simple structure, you go through the arithmetic module, do five arithmetic questions out of the official guide. Go through the algebra module, do five algebra questions out of the official guide. That'll really, really help cut down your necessary study time over time. So very, very simple, very linear type of learning and study style that a lot of us are very familiar with. Again, you can use 70 to 80% of each of your study sessions for that kind of work. Quick point I want to make here that's going to help a lot of you out. There's no need for perfection in this phase. You just want to do your best, but aim for about 70% retention, or you risk losing momentum. It's really easy to burn out through this study process because you're probably sacrificing other things in your life. A lot of us have really demanding jobs when we're studying for the GMAT. Even if we don't, we might have demanding personal situations or just passions that we want to engage with. And you might be taking time away from those, probably are taking time away from those things to study. And you don't want to get stuck in this negative loop of, okay, I'm not ready to retest because I haven't learned all this stuff perfectly. Again, 70% is a good threshold for any of you who struggle with like a negative perfectionism like I've talked about in the past. 
For others of you, you need to raise your standards. That's usually not the case for a lot of GMAT folks. A lot of GMAT folks are like the super achiever types. Um, but if, if your bar is a little low and you're just zooming through a bunch of material and retaining like 20 or 30% of it, that's when you need to engage with the review processes I was talking about and force yourself to just build up your emotional pain tolerance and dig deep and um, just in, in, embrace the discomfort of getting to that 70% or better level. If you're that kind of person, that that's usually rare, but it does happen every once in a while. And some of us do need a little, uh, a little boost as it were. <laughs> and I'm going to have, uh, some, some great material coming out for you about how to improve your discipline. Uh, this is something I get asked about a lot, how to deal with distractions. This is obviously a huge problem in our day and age. Um, so that's all coming in the pipeline. So if you're not subscribed, please do, if you want to be notified about that stuff. And if not, that's cool too. So setting expectations for most people in the knowledge building phase, we're looking at maybe one to six months. I know that's like a really big range, but you could think about maybe three months on average, but it depends on the program that you're going through. Some programs are super hardcore and it might take you 12 months to get through them. Other programs are on the faster side. And obviously this also depends on how many study hours you're putting in. I talked about what reasonable expectations are for different types of programs of study in last week's episode, how to start your GMAT studies in 2024. I do a full breakdown of providers I recommend how long you can expect each one to take, averages that we've collected over the, over the decades now. And that should really help you out if you're not sure how to estimate how long you're, you're going to be in the game here, okay? Keep in mind, if you have like big knowledge deficits or major learning differences, then that could expand the time horizon. I have done my best to calculate those situations into those averages, but you might know if you're a little on the slower side, and that's fine. I've coached thousands of people at this point th uh, through major, major learning differences, executive function, dyslexia, ADHD, you can definitely get the score that you want. Make sure you reach out to GMAC to get some testing accommodations, though, and share the documentation you have from the past, because that's a really important way to level the playing field here. Okay, and you want to get the ball rolling on that early. So a good, good little mantra is just make sure you're better than you were yesterday. This is something that the review process can help you track. Some weeks are going to be great. Some weeks are going to be bad. That's pretty much just how it goes over a three to nine month timeline, which is like pretty typical for most people with this test of adult life. I mean, there's a lot of responsibilities a lot of us have. Sometimes we're in positions where those responsibilities are increasing on a regular basis. If you're getting married, you're having kids, you're getting promoted. This is just part of the game. And I want you to know that that challenge, that difficulty is super common. You can handle it. Others have gone before you and handled it. It might not be easy. It might not be fun, but you can do it. So once you get through that knowledge building phase, you're going to move into the application phase or practice test phase. Let's talk about what that looks like. Some people like to call this the repetition phase. And at this point, you've probably been exposed at least once to everything you would need to know to do well on an official GMAT if you've gone with a reputable provider. And now it's time to start building these other skills I was talking about at the top of the app. Things like time management, stress management, stamina, understanding which questions you should invest in, understanding which questions to divest from, and then also figuring out where are my strengths and weaknesses now? Okay, I took a baseline. I knew what my strengths and weaknesses were before. Now that I've studied a bit, have my strengths and weaknesses shifted? Or do I need to triple down on my weaknesses and keep ignoring my strengths so that I can bring my weaknesses up? These are all the questions we're trying to answer in this phase of preparation. So again, the key is to realize this is a whole different set of skills. So it's not a good expectation to think that that second practice test after the knowledge building phase is gonna be amazing. It's usually not. 
it's usually not. And I think that's really, really important. It's a bummer for a lot of people because you're you're probably going to be thinking about it like a typical test. It's very hard to completely delete that mindset. And so you're thinking, well, I studied. I know the stuff. My score should go up. <laughs> and a lot of times our improvement on the GMAT is not linear like that. It's more exponential. So if you're watching on YouTube, a linear curve is just like up and to the right. Uh, an exponential curve is not much growth at the beginning and then bam, like a ton of growth as, as you get deeper into the process. So that's something that's good to think about as you get into your practice test phase. And just don't expect too much from that that first practice test because time management can be tough. Getting behind and learning how to catch back up productively can be tough. Potentially letting go of questions might be tough for a lot of you who are like the the perfectionist type like I was or the the ego type like I was, like I was an engineer I was like, I, I know how to do these math problems. I should know how to do this. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about GMAT mindset was like, when you're thinking I should know how to do this, what you're really telling yourself is I do not know how to do this. <laughs> and I can laugh about it now. But at the time, I thought, ah, darn it. They're right. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, it's it stuck around. I don't remember exactly where I heard it, but I, I've... Um, my gift to you now. <laughs> so all that stuff can be tough. And it's good to just expect that we're going to have to grit our teeth and do a next round of skill building before we're probably going to see that score move the way we want to. Some of you might get killer results, really, really good score improvement after the knowledge building phase. That's not typical, though. If you do get a super, super big leap, then you might even want to anticipate a, a little bit of a drop off on the next test. And a lot of times, I'm just saying this in case this is you, a lot of times when you see the score go up, in a big way, you take your foot off the gas a little bit in terms of your effort. It's just human nature. Oh, things are good. I'm going to take, take, take it easier now. I've arrived. I'm good at this now. And you just want to keep an eye on that. Maybe you are. Maybe the next test validates that. Um, but maybe the next test rolls off a little bit and kind of shows you what you need to work on. And keep in mind, the practice test phase is predominantly about data collection. Not every test is going to be like a am I there yet kind of experience. And some of the these tests are going to be like, what do I need to work on? Show me where I'm weak now. Show me where I'm weak now. That's a good mindset to have so that your expectations aren't too high and you're not being disappointed and like getting the emotional wind knocked out of your sails, so to speak. Okay. So a good bridge between the knowledge building phase and the application phase, if you're worried about what I'm talking about right now, like not seeing a super strong score on your second test, you can you can bridge that gap a little bit by doing some uh, short time sets from the official guide between your knowledge building phase and your second practice test. A good way to do this is just 10 questions at a time from one individual problem type is cool. So like 10 problem solving in a row, you do that set, review. 10 critical reasoning, you do that, review, 10 data sufficiency. It can help you start to diagnose your strengths and weaknesses without having to sit for a full two, three-hour test. And I would recommend starting those untimed. So just use a, well, sorry, not untimed, but use a count up timer. Use a count up timer on those initial sets. So there's no time pressure, but you're creating some time awareness. Then once you're comfortable with that, you can move to a 20-minute countdown timer for those 10 question sets. And then once you're feeling comfortable with those, you can move to a, a full practice exam. Again, try not to get stuck in this phase, but it can be a really nice bridge if uh, if you're that perfectionist type of person and, and you're just a little scared and you're feeling too much resistance to taking that second test. This is a good way to bridge it, get, get around some of that negative perfectionism that might be holding you back. 
If your professional advisor recommends something different, I recommend going with your professional advisor. They usually have more context on your specific situation, but that, again, is kind of like the can't-fail approach if you are that person who can't afford a professional advisor or you're working with someone who you don't trust or you've had to leave your professional advisor because it's not working for you. This is, this is again, kind of the bulletproof stuff that pretty much no matter where you are across the spectrum, you can't go wrong. So now that you understand the, the right expectation setting with the, the second practice test, just keep in mind, you might not have been taking that first practice test as seriously. So it might have been a little easier to let go of questions, breeze through it. But that second practice test, people sometimes get into the like, it's game time mindset. And that's understandable. But keep in mind that could affect your performance. Just keep an eye on it. Some of you are like the pump up type people or when you get really pumped up about something, you, you your performance improves. Some of us are the opposite where we need to practice decreasing mistakes mentally during these high pressure situations. Remember, this is only a practice test. I have multiple opportunities. I can take this again. If you start feeling that increased heart rate, you start to talk yourself off the ledge a little bit and just decrease the stakes. Just tell yourself it's not that big of a deal. I can retake this test eight times if I have to. <laughs> Probably won't have to do that, but you can come up with your own mantras for that, and it really helps. Second piece of advice as you enter the practice test phase, the application phase, is make sure you're simulating the practice test environment as closely as you possibly can. I have a, a, a hugely detailed episode about this from a few years back. It's called Test Day. I'm going to be going deep on it and updating it for the Focus Edition soon enough. But uh, if I haven't released that episode yet, then please go back. Everything's going to be relevant enough to be super valuable. And I talked to you about the scrap paper you want to use, and I talked to you about the environment you want to be in. I give some tips around those kinds of things that will help you get the most realistic data point. Uh, first of all, so that you don't see score drops unnecessarily, which is really painful emotionally. And then now we have all this emotional weight to overcome in addition to the actual like weight of learning the stuff and, and improving and diagnosing. Uh, but also so that when you get the feedback, you, your data is trustable. You're like, oh, I, this score sucked because I got three hours of sleep last night. Well, yeah, my score is probably going to suck too if I don't sleep well. You know, like that's obvious. Don't take a test after a night of heavy drinking. I mean, unless that's your thing, unless you're really that person who's at their best after a night of heavy drinking. I mean, that's the exception rather than the rule, but like no judgment on my side. Do what you got to do. But for most of us, that's not going to be the case. And again, you don't need to be neurotic about this uh, unless you're that person who's got like the the full data tracking for the last thousand days on your sleep. I mean, respect. I I, I believe me, I understand the personal data tracking whole situation more than most. Um, and if that's you, much respect, but there's no need to become that obsessive about it. Just think what is reasonable. What is reasonable for me personally? What do I need to be in a reasonable state of mind? Okay, such that it's unlikely to affect my performance negatively. Okay, so obvious stuff like that means that when you're looking at the score and your results, you're actually looking at your skills, not just the fact that you're irresponsible and taking a test after two hours of sleep. Um, so please don't do anything like that. That's going to be a huge waste of time and energy. Okay, just want to hit you with this again in case it's helpful. I'm that person who really needs to be reminded of things over and over and over again. It's really helpful when people repeat things to me. So I super apologize if, if you're not that person and just hearing it once is enough. But again, continue to start your study sessions with review. Never stop with that. What are my main takeaways? What are my redo list problems for the day? And then you dive into the exam itself. I would even recommend doing that review on a test day so you get like a little warm-up because when you start the exam, you go right into full pressure mode and it's nice to have your brain in a little bit of GMAT mode before you do that. 
Same thing goes for when you're reviewing practice tests, okay? So you take the test, now it's time to review and profit from it as much as possible. So I'm gonna give you a really simple structure for this. And again, this is how you can structure your study time efficiently. The most important question to ask after a practice test is how is my timing? If you're not managing time well, then you're probably undercutting your other skills. Managing time is one of the most difficult aspects of the GMAT for, for many people, and it's also one of the most important because if you've watched my uh, webinar on, on our website where I talk about how the scoring algorithm is so different from other exams, then you know that pretty much like where you end is like your score. And so you want to make sure you're not having a huge roll off at the end of the section. Sometimes it's going to happen and you can still hit goal scores that way. So if that's working for you, keep doing your thing. But that's not recommended. Um, so time management is going to be the main thing that you want to audit when you start reviewing a test. Because most people's instincts is just let me dive in and start reviewing every problem one at a time because that's typical of normal tests. But think about it this way. If you're not managing your time well, you're not getting credit for what you know already. So knowing more stuff is not going to move your score. <laughs> if I have time problems that's undercutting my knowledge, building knowledge is going to be minimally effective at best, okay? So if you're having timing issues, just roll back to those time sets I was talking about before. Just slot those into your study timeline. Do as many of them as you need to. Just short 10-question time sets with review in between each. That'll really, really help you resolve your timing difficulties over time. And don't worry if it's taking you weeks or even longer to get those timing problems resolved. Time pressure is a huge deal on the exam. And if you want a little bit of advice about how to improve with that, I talk about that in the webinar on our website as well. It's completely free. Second thing to audit after you look at your timing performance on the test is how many questions that you actually knew how to do did you get wrong? So the way I define this is like you knew the right strategy, you picked the right strategy under pressure, but it was an execution problem. Like you misread the question or you wrote five plus five equals 11 or you didn't write anything and so you made a mistake in your head. Those are the most problematic question misses that are the easiest to gloss over for people. Because again, the natural assumption is like, well, if I just know more stuff, my score is going to go up, right? And it, unfortunately, it is not that simple. If it was, there would be no need for, for TGS in the, in the first place, okay? All of you would just study, your score would go up, and everything would be cool. And I would have gone through the same thing. Didn't work that way for me, unfortunately. Auditing missing what you know is super important because if you're missing questions you know how to do, everybody, knowing more stuff is not going to improve your score. It's similar in importance to the timing thing. This is a huge deal, particularly on the math side. It's usually less of a deal on the verbal, but you might be that person who's struggling with this in verbal, okay? So just catalog those misses, make them a part of your redo list, build some new habits, stop missing questions you know how to do. Most of you are gonna be able to self-diagnose well on that front, but if you're missing a lot of questions that you know how to do over and over and over again, and you're implementing all the advice I've already given you, uh, shoot us a DM anywhere and we'll do our best to help out. Then, what you do after you've audited your timing and the questions you knew how to do but got wrong is now you can do a question-by-question -question review of every question in the exam and just add to that redo list as needed. And this is going to be really familiar for most of you. This is just like going over every question, reviewing it, maybe even web searching it to get some alternate perspectives and making sure you have reasonable explanations for the questions, okay? So that part's going to be pretty standard operating procedure for most of you, but let us know if you have questions about that. Ultimately, a lot of getting great GMAT scores is pattern recognition. And this is why I've been preaching about the review process so much. At a certain point, you'll be you'll you'll have been exposed to like 90% of the tricks that the GMAT could play on test day. And then it's just repeating those enough 
that you don't have to think too hard about how to execute them under time pressure. This is why there's a certain small slice of the population who can just study for the exam really quickly, get it, and then move on. Is like their pattern recognition and memory is so good that just seeing it once is just like, oh, another one of these, another one of these, another one of these. For most of us, we're going to need months of diligent review and consistent work to build up that pattern recognition. But that's fine. We're talking about a handful of months here for a massive payoff for the entire rest of your career. And virtually every area of your life will be touched by success in this arena. And I think it's worth it. And if you're here, you probably think it's worth it too. So don't be afraid if it's hard. Like it's probably good that it's hard. That means you're growing. It means that you're separating yourself from the general population. You're improving yourself. You're becoming more valuable over time. You're building your skill set of dealing with adversity. All of these things are super valuable when you want to be successful in business, which most of us do. So I, I think it's important to talk about that because a lot of people are like, well, how do I go from 700 to 750 or, or something like that? And it's the difference between a 650 score and a 700 score is like at 650, you're maybe recognizing stuff on a new test that, that you've seen before or versions you've seen before, like 40% of the time. Whereas at that 700 level, maybe it's like 60% of the time. And how are you going to build your pattern recognition? It's, it's repetition. It's repetition. And it's not just blind repetition of doing thousands of new problems and hoping for the best. Although that can work, it's just going to take you probably three years to get the thing done. Um, you can hack that pattern recognition by using the techniques that I talked to you about, okay? So if you're struggling to move your score or you've plateaued, you want to look at your review process. Your review process might not be robust enough. And if you need help with that, listen to our individual reading comp, critical reasoning, problem-solving, data sufficiency, IR episodes, where I talk about valuable review processes you can use on those question types to boost your skills if you need them. So, once you have gone through every question in your practice test, you want to pick three areas to focus on maximum before the next test. So what I recommend here is, let's say you're using an exam official practice test from MBA.com, just spreadsheet out or write out the percentage accuracy for each topic. Uh, start with the problem types first. So what's my percent accuracy on data sufficiency? What's my percent accuracy on integrated reasoning? What's my percent accuracy on problem solving? What's my percent accuracy on reading comp? Okay. And then you can use the top three pain points to start to funnel down what should I be focusing on before the next test. Now, if timing and missing questions you know how to do is one of the focus areas, then make that the top priority and then only work on two subtopics, all right? Now, within those problem types, you might start to see some patterns, such as I feel scared when I see rates questions or I'm not performing well on probability questions. So that's your sign to just go do a bunch of rates questions, go do a bunch of probability questions. And a good metric for uh, improving those skills is just go to the official guide and just do them all. Do all the rates questions. Go to the official guide. Do all the probability questions. Go to the official guide. Do all the exponents questions. Do them two, three, four, five, six times each until you're like, okay, if I saw anything like this, I have at least 80% confidence that I would knock it out. Okay, that, that is when you are ready for the next practice test. When you're at least 80% confident that you've resolved three, three and only three things from the previous exam. If you try to resolve five or 10, you're going to spread yourself too thin and this thing's going to take forever. Promise you. I've done this thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, honestly. And that is very unlikely to work. Again, if you're doing that and you're seeing results, great. I'm never going to argue with your results. But if you're like, why am I not getting results? That might be part of the problem. You might be spreading yourself too thin between practice exams. So you should be expecting it's going to be 
one to six weeks between practice tests, depending on how many study hours you can put into this. These are some big projects that you're going to be tackling between tests. All right. So there's three things that impact your score. Timing, missing questions you know how to do, and content knowledge, aka pattern recognition. Can I associate a lot of questions on a new test with questions I've seen before? If you're struggling with any of those and you don't know how to improve, reach out to us and we will help. But that's basically it. That's the practice test phase is building up your timing, your missing questions you know how to do, and your content and pattern recognition skills in a targeted way using the data feedback from individual practice exams and iterating, improving three areas, next test. Now what are my three weakest areas? Next test. Now what are my three weakest areas? Next test. And you're probably going to go through that cycle three to six times. It might be a lot more, though, if you're looking for a big gain. And it's definitely going to be a lot more if you ignore the advice I've given you here, okay? So uh, please, please, please take the advice. <laughs> so... um this is also a really important point to make because many people study too little between tests and you're just taking tests hoping your score is going to go up. Like, oh, it's been a while since I've taken a test, so I should probably take a test soon, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> you know you're ready to take another test when you have genuinely moved the needle on three specific areas and you know for sure you are going to perform better on those on test day. At least 80% confidence that you're going to perform better, all right? And if they're not moving on the next test, then you got to rework them again. Don't be afraid to do that. Many people have to hit focus areas two, three, four tests in a row before they really click. That's fine. If you have questions about any of this stuff, reach out anytime. That's pretty much the general advice that I can give to everybody that's going to work for you. If you're struggling to move your score, if you've had a bad experience with another provider, if your score is not moving fast enough, reach out to us and we will do our absolute best to help. If it seems like working together is a good fit or you're excited about the prospect of working with TGS, you like our philosophy and our approach, then definitely head to our website to get a little bit more information. Watch our presentation on how to reach your dreams, GMAT score in half the normal time. Super valuable, totally free. No crazy pitch on like, hey, buy my product now in there, okay? It's really high quality advice. And then if you wanna learn more about what we do, just consider booking a call and learning more. We rarely, if ever, take payment on the first call. It's just an information call to get to know each other better. We're only looking to work with people who are good fits for us, who we know we can help. And if we're not a fit to work together, we'll help you find something that's a little bit better. Um, really quick on that point, if you have no capital, like your budget is zero to invest in this, uh, then we typically do make paid recommendations on the calls even if it's not working with us. Like sometimes we sell out, sometimes it's just not a fit or like our our specific products that are proprietary are not going to be a fit for your specific situation. Usually when we make a recommendation, we make a paid recommendation on those calls. So just FYI, if you're coming on the call with a zero budget, um, you might be a little bummed out, okay? And I, I just want to set the expectations properly and make sure we're not setting ourselves up to get like a bad vibe, if, if that makes sense. Um, because like I said, you can totally do this for free it's just that the free recommendation is a pretty general recommendation. And, and I promise I am giving you the absolute best free advice that I can possibly think of after becoming one of the top experts in the field over the course of like 20 years in test prep. Okay. So if you're not implementing this stuff, then that's, that's probably the issue if you're going with free advice. But if you have some capital that you can invest and you're not sure how to invest it, we will be happy to advise whether we're fit to work together or not. Okay. If you have other questions, or you're just not the book a call kind of person, totally cool. You can reach us on pretty much any popular social channel these days at the GMAT strategy. 
on TikTok these days. I think it's at Isaac underscore TGS. I think something weird happened with our other username. So we'll work on getting at the GMAT strategy, but just at ISAAC uh, should hopefully pull up our profile. And then we're you slash the GMAT strategy on Reddit if you want to DM. As always, my greatest hope is that this material will make your studies as easy and as painless as they can possibly be. If you want more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the GMAT, as always, head to our website, thegmatstrategy.com, and check out our free video presentation on how to achieve your dream GMAT score in half the normal time. It's about 40 minutes long, and I'm just going to pack it with as much advice and inspiration as I possibly can. Strongly recommend that when you have the time to set aside. In the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe and stay positive and stay consistent with your studies. Talk to you all soon.